You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. It's hard to make people laugh. And it's even harder to get people to pay you money to make them laugh. These women show us how. Yeah! It's my first ever stand-up comedy gig, January this year. I'm pacing on the spot at the back of the room. I'm facing the stage and mouthing the words to my set. Adrenaline is coursing through my body. I can still leave and no one will notice. Then my name is called. I take a deep breath and do a slow, rocky Balboa run to the stage. I shake hands with the MC, take the microphone out of the stand and face the audience. Greetings, everyone. Everyone's been making that look very easy. I'm told you can spot someone who's new to comedy by the way they handle the microphone. New comics struggle to lift the mic out of the stand in one smooth movement. Tonight, I'm the newbie. Um, so, uh, for the longest period of time, I wanted to be an actress. And my mum says that she named me Lauren after the actress Lauren Bacall. My dad, however, says that I was named Lauren because it was the only name my parents could agree on that wasn't the name of one of his ex-girlfriends. <laughs> oh. And my dad had a lot of ex-girlfriends. <laughs> My family loves comedy, especially Eddie Izzard. When I was young, about five or six, I started watching his recorded shows with them. You know, because cake or death, that's a pretty easy question. Everyone, anyone can answer that. Cake or death? Uh, cake, please. I didn't always get the punchlines, but I enjoyed his performance and the audience laughter. Back in primary school, Kath and Kim was the show to watch. The show had a big impact on me. It was the first time I'd seen women dominate in comedy. But comedy only became an obsession after I finished uni. That was when I started to go and see stand-up gigs every week. And it's when I started thinking, maybe I could do this. As much as I wanted to get on stage, I had the impression that stand-up was a bit of a boys' club. When I'd check out the weekly comedy room lineups in Melbourne, out of ten comics on a bill, only one, or at most two, were women. I wasn't the only one to notice the gender imbalance. At this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival, less than a quarter of shows were solo female shows. Festival director Susan Proven said it's not as bad as it could be, but there is still a long way to go before the festival reaches gender parity. So why aren't there more women doing stand-up? What's keeping women from entering the comedy circuit? To give us a clue, academic Barbara Joseph explains that in Australia, women don't fit the bill of the larrikin that we associate with funny blokes. Female comedians are advised about what topics they can talk about. No periods, please. And even what sort of clothing they should wear when performing. Nothing to distract from the jokes. Plus, it doesn't help that we have a culture of catcalling and gendered comments that are often yelled from the crowd. It's not hard to see why stand-up comedy has a reputation as a boys' club. All the signs are telling me comedy won't welcome voices like mine, but I can't ignore that I'm drawn to the stage and the thrill of making people laugh. So, I'm determined to give it a go. How can I prepare myself for a career in comedy as a woman? 
Hi, I'm Prue Blake. I started comedy about a year and a half ago when I moved to Melbourne. I started doing improv because all my comedy heroes were doing it. That's where they all started. So the Broad City Girls, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey. I was like, if they can do it, I can probably do it. Prue and I met at a comedy writing night in Melbourne run by a group called Gaggle. We were both really into comedy, but we were also really nervous about doing our first stand-up gig. So we arranged to test out our new material at an open mic night. And I was a wreck. I was so panicky. I was so nervous. I was um, practicing to myself at home all day, procrastinating study uh, and just saying these jokes over and over again, trying to you know, make sure that I was comfortable when I was on stage. But getting to go with a group of girls that were all just starting, that you knew were supportive, that was a really, really good experience and a great first gig. We both noticed that there were a lot more male comedians at the open mic night than women. I've been told my whole life, you know, as a woman, you've got to be prepared. And I think you're automatically told to be more cautious, more less likely to throw caution to the wind. Um, Whereas I think a lot of men just seem to go... I'll just jump on stage and see how it flies. And I don't know if it's less fear of vulnerability or ejection or it going badly, where I I would see that as the scariest possible thing, to go on stage and not be prepared and just see what comes out and see how it goes. So I have found, I've found that everyone has been very welcoming, if not a little, they want you to pay your dues. I've definitely got a vibe that you have to prove your comedy chops before you get into a there's an in crowd and an out crowd a lot of people come in and out of comedy and to a certain extent starting comedy isn't actually the hard part it's staying in comedy that's bock hello my name is lauren bock i have been doing stand-up for about five years now uh my style i guess is somewhere between the lucille ball and probably amy schumer i don't know we're every, you know, 10 people that do their first gig, maybe one of them might make it to their hundredth gig because it takes a while and it takes energy and energy that you could be spent doing other things, 100%. Laundry, a vegetable <laughs> garden, like meaningful relationships. No, um, or, you know, so it does, it's, it's a commitment of energy. Bok has been in the comedy circuit for years. She and many others in the scene have noticed that there are more women doing stand-up than there ever have been before. But she understands why there aren't more women taking the stage. I think women are socialised from a really young age to be accepted, to be nice. You know, like that that we're we're told that, you know, we're not allowed to make mistakes Um, as women. We're not sort of, you know, told to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. You have to do something perfect straight away. And that is how we are rewarded. And I think there is a massive fear of people not laughing at you, you know, or <laughs> laughing at you but not with you or, or whatever it is. There, is. there is a fear of getting up and being isolated and alone. Again, women are, you know, supposed to be surrounded by people all the time. Like, we're supposed to be mothers, we're supposed to be par- like partners, we're supposed to be everything. A woman alone is considered a very bad thing. So why so and these all the all these things lead down the path to, to stand-up comedy you know like someone standing up there completely alone with their own opinions with you know no, no one around them as a safety net or anything like that 
um, you know, it is, it is a completely isolated sort of medium. For me, one of the biggest factors that stopped me from getting involved in stand-up comedy was the lack of female representation on stage. Sometimes it can feel intimidating when, the, you know, when there aren't as many women out there or women aren't doing the thing and you think, oh, there's no space for me. But, there, I mean, but, but if you can get past that, there, is, there are audiences that want to see, I think, that there are audiences that want to see women. That's Deanna. I'm an American comedy artist, and I uh, create and hopefully cultivate immersive comedy, which is some sort of blend of improv and clown and bouffant and physical theater and interactive installations. Deanna is a comedy veteran. She's performed all around the world for the past 20 years and has won heaps of awards. But her time on stage hasn't always been easy. When I was coming up in the improv world in New York, it was, I mean, like, I couldn't get on stage without being sexualized by the, by the guy that I was on stage with. Like, even when I was, I would set up that I was a doctor or something, and he would be like, oh, stop hitting on me. And it was just like, it was just, it was hilarious to me. Um, and I think that I, I felt very, I felt sort of victimized by that until I decided to kind of flip that on its ear and make work that dealt, just dealt with, I think that some of my first kind of creations were just dealing with sex with sexuality because at least I was in control of the thing that was being foisted upon me. Deanna's experience in comedy is not unique. Stories like hers can understandably deter women from entering comedy. I, I think there is a very hard narrative at the moment because I feel like women, this whole thing around sort of, oh, isn't it, isn't it awful to be a woman in comedy? Oh, my God. And you kind of get this sort of, like, feminist kind of counteraction, which is that women in comedy are just these put-upon, terrible victims. Um, some, would someone think of the poor female comedians? Oh, the sexism it must go through. Oh, just how can anyone do comedy? That does not help women get into comedy. Um, it's actually really counterproductive. Yes, there is, you know, sexism, like in any other industry, it's very male-dominated, but, you know, I think everybody is working towards an end goal. No one is, no one is sitting on the fence about it. Like, this is, this is the new movement, and this is going to happen. Thankfully, there are positive changes happening in the comedy scene. There are comedy nights, like Lemon Comedy in Melbourne, dedicated to amplifying and celebrating underrepresented voices. There are open mic rooms that actively seek to book 50% female comedians on their bills. And there's groups like Gaggle, run by Lauren Hayward and Lauren Bock. Uh, Gaggle is a, at the moment, it is a one-day workshop for women, female, and female-identifying, non-binary, basically anyone that isn't straight and white <laughs> and male it's a it's a workshop uh for a day where you learn improv stand up and clowning and i think the thing i get out of it the most is seeing women connect with each other um make each other laugh have a really good day and walk away feeling so confident about going forward and getting on a stage i want to see more more women on stage because I think that I'm I mean I'm just tired of how many how many more male stories do we need like we don't we're done like we've had them we've had them for centuries and I think that um I think that there is so I think there's a need and I think that the audiences know that there's a need for other voices I think people think there's one universal kind of comedy that's funny sort of thing um and that's that is not true 
you know, it takes all kinds and it's only because we haven't been given all kinds as a consuming, a comedy consuming audience that we believe that there isn't. So the best way you can support it is by going to see women, you can give them money to go and see their shows, um, you can come to a gaggle, you can tell a female friend that's very funny that they should be a comedian, you should encourage them, you should tell them that. Um, or if you yourself have always wanted to give it a go, you are funny, you should go and do that. No one's stopping you from doing it except yourself. That's what I find with comedy a lot of the time. It's like, you know, if no one's putting the comedy gun to your head. So sometimes it can take a while to walk through the door. After a minute or so of being on stage, I start to relax. A bell chimes from the back of the room. I pass the three-minute mark. I'm nearly done. And then, as quickly as it started, it's over. But... You know, this is the feeling of, you know, making a whole room of people laugh and that that whole approval. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, with great risk comes great reward, especially if your particular brand of risk and what makes you feel really good is making a bunch of people laugh. Then that is highly, highly addictive. It's like crack. Correct. Yeah. So um, I'm addicted to comedy, basically. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot help you. <laughs> I cannot help myself. Lauren Klein produced that story. The supervising producers were Selena Shannon, Beth Gibson, and Beck Fari. All the best exists because we want emerging Australian storytellers to learn how to make audio stories. You can start by pitching to us from any part of Australia and we'll pair you with one of our supervising producers. Email contact at allthebestradio.com. Next up, Sarath Chandra meets two people who are also changing up the comedy scene. Stand-up comedy in Australia is experiencing something like a renaissance. Even though the comedy scene isn't as big as it is in the States or the UK, it's becoming incredibly popular. For me, it's a really interesting time because there's a new and diverse breed of comedians that are coming through. Now, two of those comics are Sydney-based Lizzie Hu and Seren Jayamana. Both of them have used their backgrounds to inform their material and found the courage to get on stage. They've also figured out how to make the majority laugh, even while being in the minority. Hi, I'm uh, Lizzie Hu. I know, yeah, it's a cool name. People tell me, oh, you got a cool name, you got a cool name. Uh, tell you what they don't know is my actual real name. Yeah, it's Elizabeth, Marjorie, <laughs> Catherine, Gakely, and who? Yeah, a little bit too long, I think. Yeah, I think my parents, they wanted me to fit in as a kid, so they gave me three really long regal names at the front kind of hide the Asian names at the back. Uh, hello, my name's Saran Jayamana. I've been doing a lot of gigs recently for very small crowds, uh, very small crowds, by my choice. Like, I don't want your pity, right? But, uh, <laughs> but I read a study in the Sydney Morning Herald recently that said one in 10, uh, one in 10 Australians identify 
as openly racist, right? One in ten, that's crazy. When I read that, like every gig, I just call up ahead and I'm like, can we just cap the audience at nine? (laughs) (laughs) I still have a day job. Uh, Grew up in Brisbane, born in Brisbane. My mum is from Toowoomba and my dad is from Malaysia. So he's Malaysian Chinese. I'm a comedian, uh, used to be an accountant, well, still qualified, I guess, uh, and uh, born in Melbourne, now live in Sydney for the last five years now. Uh, Sri Lankan background, is that relevant? When it's visual, if I don't address it, like that's uh, people are like, why hasn't he explained this yet? When it's just audio, mm. my voice sounds pretty... I can dial up the full ocker if you want. Don't you tell me that it wasn't meant to be. Call it quits, call it destiny. Just because it won't come easily. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Yeah, I've been doing comedy for almost two years. Been doing comedy for about six years. Deciding to walk away from accounting was, it was always sort of just to dip my toe in the water kind of thing. And so far I've been managing to float, which is pretty good, uh, especially because I come from like a family that can't swim. So, uh, and, and that applies both as a metaphor, but also we, yeah, we can't swim. When did you want to become a comic? And when did you first try? So when I was young, mum, to get us to be quiet around the dinner table, she used to make us say knock knock jokes. And I, and I've always said from like, you know, age four or five that I wanted to be a comedian. Like mum's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm like, oh, I want to be a comedian. Mum's like, mm, that's interesting. <laughs> I reckon the first time I ever saw comedy was probably on like Hey Hey It's Saturday or something like that, which my mum used to watch religiously uh, as as a young kid, and uh, and then either that or also like the Melbourne International Comedy Festival gala became more into stand up as I went through high school. I guess I remember like kids would be listening to music CDs and stuff, but I'd be listening to like. Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld's albums or yeah a lot of one-liner comedians like Dimitri Martin, Mitch Hedberg that kind of thing. Growing up I was always like yeah I'm gonna go to university I'm gonna get a job and then I'm gonna like rise to the top you know (laughs) and then you kind of hit 30 and you're like what am I doing with my life um yeah I need like something else interesting and I don't know I was going through a bit of a rough patch and I needed a creative outlet and this is something that sort of always appealed to me and I wanted a challenge. I wanted to be able to get up and speak in front of people because my, my whole, like, actually, the reason I did it was I, I was nervous speaking in front of people and I thought if I can do stand-up comedy, then I can speak in front of anyone. So that was <laughs> that was the main motivator. Well, look, dive in the deep end, Lizzie. Add a <laughs> girl. Yeah, exactly. I, like, I probably yeah. should have just done some Toastmasters course or something, but... Yeah. yeah. Anyway. No, you chose. You chose. <laughs> I don't know wisely, but you chose. Yeah, I did. Okay, you chose. <laughs> and now you have a crippling yeah, social addiction, if you I will. I need to prove yourself to random people. Exactly. I, I need to be liked.
American comedian Chris Rock once said the best way to stop gun violence in America would be to make bullets cost $10,000 each. Now his words really stuck, because to me, the best jokes have a grain of truth to them. Now I think sometimes comedy has the power to influence and maybe even challenge people. Comedy provides that like nice humorous lens into some pretty scary situations or like pretty dark places for people and putting that funny lens on it makes it relatable for people and uh, yeah I definitely think you could watch a comedian who might be talking about their experiences growing up um, you know say black in, in America how that feels for them and then people being like oh wow I never knew that that was what it meant for you you know I think it's very dangerous when people like start to see comedy as this art form that can, um, like it has a role to play, which is to poke fun at problems and like to expose, maybe to give a perspective that people wouldn't have necessarily had. But I don't think that comedy can go as far as to then like hold people to account or like or like change things. It can maybe just, like, it goes as far as, like... Like with Trump, for example, there's no... No matter how much satire there is about Trump, it's not really Doing anything. changing anything. It might make people take a step back and be like, oh, yeah, this is kind of absurd. But then even then with Trump, it's, it's like, almost gone so full tilt that now we're a bit numb to it, we're a bit, like, desensitised. So the more satire there is, the more we just tune out. And there's nothing, and Trump's so absurd that, like, there's so many things he does where it's like, oh, this is the last straw. But it's, how is this thing any worse than what came before? Like, if we, if that wasn't the last straw, there'll never be a last straw, if you know what I mean. I guess, like, the first thing he said was the Mexican, like, they're coming here, they, they don't send their best people, they send their rapists and their whatever. That was pretty bad. And then the next thing was to grab him by the pussy thing. And then that was like, this is the last straw. And then there was the, he slagged off the, like, war, the veteran, the uh, Muslim war veteran. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, well, they're all equally as bad as each other, but we're we're just slowly getting desensitized to it. And I think part of the desensitization is just the, like, the failure of comedy to actually go beyond just pointing out that he's saying crook shit. Mm. You know what I mean? So, so it, it, you reckon it, it, all it does is kind of highlight stuff, helps you talk about it. Doesn't change anyone. It, it's generally talking to the converted anyway. Generally, if, I mean, people might watch something and be like, "Oh yeah, wow, that's a that's given me a new way to think about things." But it's never going to give anyone a solution. I don't think. Do you reckon diversity is an advantage in comedy? I, there's an emphasis on trying to push diverse lineups, which I think is a good thing in general. But I do sometimes get worried with how people perceive what a diverse lineup should be and how people push that agenda sometimes. Like, I think I want my work to be respected for the work rather than people to assume that it was because of some sort of quota or whatever. What kind of person do you want people to see when you're up on stage? 
oh, I want people to see like the real Lizzie. Like I want I want them to hear real stories. I mean, obviously they're sort of bended for comedy, but I want I want those stories to come from from real places. I do talk a lot about looking looking Asian, but then being like quite very like Australian or um I yeah, I I do talk about my appearance and being half Asian. Now that I'm writing more jokes and I'm I'm quite conscious of the fact I'm like, oh, I gotta write some stuff that's not about me being Asian. I can't keep saying this because it just sounds a little tired for me but I'm like uh, it's not the only thing about me like I am a bit more than being Asian yeah like I, I like I just want to write about things that I observe just not even referencing um, my cultural background or anything like that yeah so yeah I, it, it's hard though but it is specific probably in the last couple of months I've actually sat down and said no more no more Asian jokes <laughs> Like keep keep doing them, but like there, you need to do some other stuff to balance it out. Diversity doesn't mean oh we just need one of each in every story. It means we need more stories from more diverse people. So the fact that Kamal's there telling his story is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, they might be really interesting, funny brown women, but they shouldn't come at his expense. They should just their story should be told as well. And so um, in challenging stereotypes, I don't want to be like, I never want to be considered oh, this guy's the spokesperson for, because I don't, who, I have a very different experience to so many different people from like a South Asian background. I grew up in a very middle class white environment. Sure, there'll be some people who had that as well, but it's all different. I know it's cliche, but talking with Lizzie and Siren reminded me that real life can be funnier than fiction. Probably one of my favourite jokes that I have, just because it's like not about uh, anything heavy and political. So I like I think of it as kind of like just a "Hey guys, relax. I know what I'm doing." kind of joke. Is a joke I have about when I had to buy a vacuum cleaner. Um, just because the whole experience was very absurd. And I'm a sucker as well. Like for, I don't know, it was, I genuinely convinced myself that it was the right thing in terms of my health. Uh, and so the guy was, because oh, I have eczema uh, and I'm allergic to dust mites. So it was a very, that was a weak admission to a vacuum cleaner salesman because he just pounced on it. And he totally upsold me. And the whole experience was very funny. They do a little demonstration where they pour sand out and then, they get the machine that you want and it just is shit and then they show you this like it's it's like a beast this machine looks like a humvee it's like all gold and yeah and then they do it and there's no way you're not buying once you see the demonstration there's no way you're not buying the vacuum cleaner and so that whole experience was just like very stressful financially but also oh yeah because i guess coming out of stress is often a good inspiration to create a joke out of it yeah so I have this joke about um, I went to JB Hi-Fi once and when I was leaving the um, the bag check guy, he he was like, hey, come back. Um, and he just said, like, 
do you know that eating wasabi can ward off cancer cells in your stomach? And he was actually like sucking on one of those little, you know, like little green wasabi packets. And I was, I just looked at him like, what? <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, it's really good for your stomach. And I'm like, cool. Thank you, joke gods. I'll be on my way now. <laughs> so I've written a joke about it. But I, I kind of feel like that sort of thing happens. Um, and I kind of think of like Mr. Squiggle, you know, Mr. Squiggle, like you get one bit of something and then his job was to like make the complete picture. So I kind of think of like that with little situations that happen every time. So you're the Mr. Squiggle of comedy. Well, you heard it first. <laughs> that story was by Sarath Chandra. Alison Chan and Olivia Rosenman were the supervising producers. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with SIN and 3RRR in Melbourne. Our executive producer is Alison Chan. Jordan Fennell is our Victorian State Coordinator. The All the Best Community Coordinator is Chloe Gillespie. Our SIN Community Coordinator is Erin Dick. Matilda Fay is our social media producer. And I'm your host, Maddie McQueen. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. All the Best is heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and is made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find all of our other episodes at allthebestradio.com. All the Best is also a podcast, so subscribe. <laughs>